thank you so much, bro, bro, for doing this. I'll, I won't, I won't keep that part in the, the podcast. You can call me, bro, 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 Joe, Joe, bro. That's my name. You have the perfect name for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have the perfect name for nicknames, just like Rowan, Row, Row, Ro. mm-hmm. Jojo, Row, Row. Yeah, I love it. Studies have shown that anxiety disorders are often genetic, as is evidenced by my older brother, Joe, and me. Joe has dealt with generalized anxiety disorder his entire life and now sees similar traits in his daughter. The anxiety that my brother and I both experienced was exacerbated as young children when we were sexually abused by an extended family member. Joe has fought to achieve his dreams despite the crippling anxiety he experiences. He shares his story on this episode. My name is Katie Houston Davies, and this is Mental Illness in Me. My name is Joe Houston, and I'm a professional video game developer, primarily a computer programmer. I've been in the games industry for 17 years, and I love to be creative. Well, that's the funny thing. I, I must be creative. I don't know if I always love it. It's, all, it's a hate, love and hate relationship with being creative. I, I always feel like I'm not being creative enough. I always feel like I am not doing what I want to do or I haven't done it the way that it should be done, but, but it is what I live for. I write, I draw sometimes, I make video games, which is what they pay me for. And that's really me in a nutshell. Tell us a little bit about your your family and your background. My family is you, for one. <laughs> you're my sister. Yes. You're the oldest of my three younger sisters. <laughs> um, no brother. favorite. Uh, no comment. <laughs> I, ha- I have no brothers, and uh, I grew up in Utah and mostly Southern California. And I grew up Mormon but I left the church in my teens and I live a quiet life now with my wife and my uh, one daughter who's 11 years old. And we have three dogs and a rabbit. The rabbit's still, still kicking. Always kicking. That's you gotta watch out for those. (laughs) It's Rocky, right? Rocky the rabbit. That's right. And you have a little, a mini me. In your daughter, Ella, in terms of creativity, although you have a very creative wife as well. I do. Personality-wise and I would say struggles-wise, Ella is a lot like me. My daughter, Ella, is a lot like me. Yeah. It's so fun and amazing to read her writing because it is so you. Like, just, it's just insane to me because I remember reading your writing when I was younger as a kid and just being like, he's like a professional, you know, when you were a teenager and I was just three years younger. I just thought he's so far ahead of his time kind of thing, you know, and that's how Ella is. Like when I read her little piece that made it into the writing contest, she's just so mature and wise beyond her years in the way that she writes. It's crazy. Yeah, she has an adult mind, but a child's emotions, which was uh, something I related to a lot uh, as a kid. Right. Well, uh, this is great. It kind of segues into what we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to start our conversation just by having you tell us a little about your mental health diagnosis. What do you struggle with specifically? You know, these diagnoses are fluid 
And uh, when I talk to my therapist about it, I find it healthy to think about a diagnosis as a tool. You know, it's like, it's only as useful as like, it's a framework that helps you in some way. Because I think a lot of times people think they need to sum up everything about you in a succinct way. You're going to exactly know exactly what a person with ADHD is, or you're going to know exactly what a person who's on the autism spectrum is. And that it's really impossible for one thing, because these things are changing all the time, which I think is reflected in stuff like, uh, like, like we say, talking about the autism spectrum, for example, we're already acknowledging that it's like a whole bunch of stuff. And we're trying to understand a huge swath of people. And it's not realistic to think that one diagnosis would encompass them all. But I think my most recent diagnosis is generalized anxiety disorder and possibly PTSD. I also think though, in a weird way, I think people kind of draw comfort sometimes from having a diagnosis because they feel like, oh, I'm just so weird. Or I just, my brain doesn't seem to work the way that other people do. And it's like a way to explain why they think and feel the way they do so that they don't feel like they're just abnormal. They feel like, oh, this is something that can explain to people why I act the way I do, why the, I think the way I do. And so I think sometimes people cling to their diagnoses, perhaps in an unhealthy way, because they want so desperately to feel like it's not just their personality. I don't know. Do you think that that's a fair assessment or not? Sure. I, I don't think it's black or white, but I think that everything you've said is true or can be true. I have very life-altering migraines for maybe five, six years until last year I was having a really hard time. And I was having the migraines. I was having them like multiple times a week. But I finally went to a neurologist about my migraines and she talked to me for like an hour and she was like okay here's the thing my dear you do not have migraines you have tension headaches you probably have ptsd and generalized anxiety disorder we're going to try you on some medication and the headaches are probably going to go away and i sat in the car after that appointment and i remember feeling you know, conflicted. I, I think hearing that and being like, this is something I can do something about. And like these physical symptoms I'd had for so many years and like, couldn't like everything I did to try and manage them just like didn't work. So it was like, there was a lot of hope, but at the same time, it was a little crushing too. And a little emotional. Cause I kind of felt seen and that felt good, but I'm also a fairly reserved person so i was a little naked i'm feeling all these feelings in like the 10 or 15 minutes before i drove back home again i do think it's a real thing though like feeling some comfort from a diagnosis i don't think that that's wrong i think that if you find though that the diagnosis isn't helping you to achieve more or be more of yourself like if it's helping you to do less or hide from who you are then then I think you might want to examine that. I think that's a really good point. And, but I'm curious, have the headaches gone away? Yeah, like it, it, after a number of years of trying to figure it out, uh, they come back sometimes. And it's not like every headache I get is guaranteed to be an emotional 
issue, but I first think it's an emotional issue. Whereas before it'd be like, oh, did I get enough water? Has there been an altitude change? Did I eat too much chocolate today? Like, like I had a huge list of possibilities before. And now it's like, what's wrong? Like, what, what am I, what, what could be wrong right now? Right. That is such a tangible example of how physical and mental health are linked because so often we view mental health outside of the sphere of physical health, you know, and it just goes to show how connected those things can be. I think people who suffer from panic attacks can attest to that as well. Mm -hmm. At least when I had uh, my first panic attack, my heart rate was elevated insanely for a very long period of time. And that was brought upon by something mental that was manifesting itself completely physically. And I think sometimes people don't understand just how damaging it would be to not treat a mental health issue. Yeah, my wife is a um, PhD researcher, and she specifically looks into maternal health, the, the health of mothers, and specifically those with traumatic births. And something she talks a lot about that she's learned in her research is that there are physical consequences to being stressed and PTSD or, you know, anything like that is a continuous stress response and your body reacts to being in stress physically. Like you're not going to spend as much time digesting your food or running your, your gut in all that kind of thing, because there's no need. You have to get away from the lion. It's like chasing you down or whatever. But when your mind thinks that you are always being chased by a lion, my daughter's counselor uh, calls it, uh, if you have a shark in your living room, you know, you're always in that fight or flight response. And, uh, and it'll have long-term consequences for your health because your body's not made to be in that short-term survival place 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Oh, I love that you brought that up. I think they spoke about something similar when I went to the OCD treatment center, they talked about a bear, like your response when you see a bear and that, that same idea of how sometimes your response to something very minor, like, I don't know, running into somebody, you know, in public that can trigger the response of what it would be like for somebody else to be standing in front of a bear. Mm. And you can live like that every day and multiple, multiple times a day face that kind of fear. Rowan was throwing up all night, uh, not last night, but the night before. And I was terrified. And then we thought he kind of had gotten through it. And then this morning he threw up again. Mm. And I was like panicking. I came in, I said, Cam, we got to go to the emergency room. He threw up again. He was acting tired. And I, I think there's something wrong. And, and Cam's like, Katie, he just, he's been sick. And so he doesn't feel good. So mm -hmm. he's a little sleepy and I think we need to wait a couple hours and see how things play out. And sure enough, he's been doing better and better. But to me, I was afraid he was going to die in that moment. I was afraid that I was going to lose him. And I thought this is ridiculous, but that's how I felt. And I, I hate feeling that way. It's so scary. It's hard too, because emotions, you really can't reason with them because they're not, they're not logical creatures. They are emotions. <laughs> they, they're happening to you. They're not something that you have created. You didn't make a feeling of happiness. You're, you're either happy or you're not. You're either afraid or you're not. That's a big challenge for me. I'm a very cerebral person. I'm a very intellectual person. And uh, when I went to therapy most recently, she was like, wow, you're really good at this. You know everything that you're supposed to 
do and think and feel. It's like, that's right. But I don't feel any of these things. Like, I don't know how to get <laughs> from like knowing what I'm supposed to do to like actually having it be that way for me and in my life. Man, it's, it's really cool talking to you because we're very similar <laughs> in certain ways, you know, being related and dealing with uh, very similar anxiety. So I want to go back to our childhood. I remember when I was a little girl and you were little too, so we must have been really little, you would have these really, really vivid nightmares, which I believe have continued most of your life. I specifically remember that you had these recurring nightmares about Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. And I'm not sure if I made that up or not. I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if you can speak to the nightmares and tell me if you think that this was related to anxiety from that young of an age. Yes, I do still have vivid dreams and vivid nightmares, mostly vivid nightmares. It's something that I've passed on to my daughter too. It's been helped somewhat because I get uh, sleep therapy now. I, I have a sleep apnea and so I wear a breathing machine, a machine that blows air up my nose all night and it, it stopped me snoring and it somewhat stopped the nightmares, but they'll still creep in. Yeah, I did used to have the dreams about Maleficent and they were definitely, for sure, me as a child trying to deal with trauma and stress. In my case, those nightmares all surrounded a traumatic sexual abuse event when I was a kid. And they, they were very linked to that, even though the dreams had nothing to do with that. I think it was a sense of powerlessness, which as a child is extremely pronounced. I mean, we can all feel powerless, but as a child, you are so dependent on adults. And when they betray that trust, I think it, it can you can put your whole little world in a free fall and you don't have tools to like deal with it either, like to describe it or to like, you know, work your way through it. It's, it's very raw and very like, like I said, like feelings happen to you. Like I think as a kid, everything's like that. You don't, you don't really logic your way through much as a child. Well, you and I both, we kind of went through this traumatic sexual abuse experience together when we were very, very young. And I wonder, do you remember those early therapy sessions as a kid? And do you feel like those were helpful? I do remember those early sessions. And uh, I do think that they were helpful. I think one thing that our therapist um, did well was she, she just allowed us to talk about taboo stuff, you know, make that normal. And that was something that I think was super important because sexual abuse is sexual and it is taboo by nature. I struggled, I remember in that scenario with the fact that we were told to keep a secret and I, I was prepared to keep the secret. And, and then when it all came out, there were weird feelings of guilt that the secret was out, even though I knew it was the right thing. And then later in life, I would feel guilty about the fact that I was willing to keep the secret. Of course, I was five years old. So, you know, these feelings aren't rational. I think just breaking the secret open, you know, and all the secrets that we as adults keep from each other and from children, like, you know, not talking about certain things. I think just smashing that all apart in like a tangible way for a kid is, uh, I think that was a huge deal and something that 
our counselor did do for me at least. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting too that you mentioned um, that you were willing to keep the secret because the abuser, you know, sort of played into your sense of of morality, right? Somebody tells you to keep a secret. And so I don't know if you felt like you were obligated to keep the secret. Do you think it was out of fear? Uh, for me, I think it was because you that's what you do. You're supposed to. You know, I it was a rule and I was I was a rule follower. It wasn't much deeper than that actually. I mean, maybe it was, but like as a kid that was my understanding of it. Like rule breaking was hard for me to get my head around, I think. Although I broke plenty of rules, especially <laughs> later on. But uh, there were just certain kinds of rules, specifically like law and order type rules and standing up to authority and things like that, that I was like, no, we don't do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. For me, I've never been able to keep a secret my whole life. I, you know, I, I couldn't keep the secret, <laughs> even if I wanted to. I mean, you know that because I would tattle on you all the time. Right. Yeah, I it, I think we were both following the different scripts, but with very similar motivations. And I think later in life, if I thought something was the right thing to do, I would have to do it. Like I I didn't have any nuance. Basically, I'm just right. like, well, I've decided this is right, so this is what I'm doing, contrary to what anybody else says or what other consequences are. Right. So interesting. I like how you said that that we were both trying to do what we thought was right in different ways. So how did your anxiety manifest itself in other ways as you were growing up and even into your adult life? I remember as a kid, like uh, anything involving interacting with other people was extremely stressful for me. Like if I had to make an order at like a fast food restaurant or something, I would be thinking through every possible permutation of like what could be said and what I need to say and repeating to myself and trying to figure out what am I supposed to do here? And, and then I would get in that situation. And if anyone said anything that didn't match like what I had planned, I would just like freeze. Like I didn't know what to do. And then people would become impatient because you know, you're just standing there they don't know why. And they're like, hello. And I would, that, that would terrify me. And it actually wasn't until very late in life, like well into adulthood that I learned to like go up to the counter and just be like, so how does this work? Like what, what's going on here? Like what, what am I supposed to do? Like, I don't, this menu looks weird or like whatever and find out that people would be totally fine. The frustration was when I just would give no communication. Right. Oh, that is, that is super, super interesting. And I, I think I can relate in some ways. Again, it's, it's really interesting to me to see how parallel some of our experiences are both suffering from anxiety disorders, but also how different, you know, and that kind of is reflected in our personalities as well. You know, like I'm all, I'm a very talkative person and I think people assume that because I'm super social and outgoing that I don't have that kind of anxiety, but I do. I, I had extreme social anxiety sort of analyzing and obsessing over social interactions after the fact. So I think you would, you would obsess about them before, <laughs> like going through everything that could happen. And I would just, you know, speak off the cuff and do things spontaneously. And then afterwards agonize over the things that I said. 
I do some of that. The uh, I'm running the, the reel in my head over and over again and torturing myself for what I did or didn't do. Um, and, but again, it would be if what was like socially the thing you're supposed to do. And like, was I weird? You know, if I felt right. if I was weird, like I, I missed the mark, then it, it would just be agonizing for me. But if like I, we had an argument or something and like I think that I communicated well, I would just be like, well, that's on them. <laughs> it was like being normal has been very hard for me. And it's something that I it has caused me an unbelievable amount of stress. Right. Wanting to be considered normal by others. Yeah, just fitting, just like, just like keeping it moving, you know, not being the one who, who stops the, all the conveyor belts and, you know, brings the machinery to a halt, you know, just, just <laughs> not being outed maybe as, as different, you know, in every interaction that I have. You have such a good way of explaining things. I'm feeling proud at the moment. Uh, that was a really excellent example. Just wondering if there's any others that you want to share. Yeah, I used to think this, this is a this is a tricky thing because I'm going to end up using a lot of my understanding of me and the world to describe how I was back then. But I don't know if I understood myself in that way or even what I felt back then. You know how how we can kind of revise a little bit. Right. But I definitely used to think a lot about not wanting to be here anymore. I didn't understand, sometimes didn't understand why I was alive. And also that it was just, like it just didn't make sense. Like I just shouldn't be here. And I think I used to think about that as like, like self-harm kind of thoughts. I think now I realize that I was just exhausted at being different and being me. And I do still have those thoughts. Um, and my daughter has those thoughts. And it's, uh, it's a tricky road to navigate too, because expressing those thoughts, I think rightfully makes people very upset. But, you know, they can be misunderstood. And it's one of those things too, like, uh, was it my is it an anxiety disorder that made me feel that way? Or is it that I feel that way and that causes an anxiety disorder? These right. are hard things to say. It's been broached that uh, I might be on the autism spectrum, but I'm, I would be very hard to diagnose if that was true. I do know that socially interacting with people is very challenging and, uh, and has been a source of constant stress for me since the day I was born. Right. And it's, and like you said, since the day you were born, it's not like it was something, you know, these anxiety disorders for a lot of us, it's just the way we came. Early on, there was a lot of talk about like, what was the inciting event? But like, when I would think when I thought back, I'm like, I've always been this way. Like always, always. You really made me think a lot when you were talking about the depressive thoughts that people oftentimes attribute to depression. But quite often, like you said, it's pro- there's probably many people out there who have thoughts that are considered depressing, but it's not because of depression. It's anxiety that is so crippling that, it, like you said, it's exhausting. And I think that's a really interesting distinction to make. I don't know if it, there's really a difference, 
but I think there is. <laughs> I'm not sure between like depression and anxiety. I've had a little bit of depression and I can say it feels really different. <laughs> like really? What I, yeah, what I'm just exhausted, but like, and I'm having a low moment. And then after like a, a little, like a, after taking a breather, it's like, okay, let's do it. Like, what do I need to do? You know, like that feels different. I can feel that like, oh, I had a little dip, but like, it'll be okay. Whereas like depression, it's like subtle. It, at least it was for me, not subtle, but it was indirect. It's just like my head's on the pillow. And I think maybe I just won't take it up off the pillow. You know, I'm just like, that would be easier. I'm not thinking stuff like, I wish I wasn't here. I wish I wasn't alive. It was just sort of like, my body just won't respond. So in what ways do you feel like you have been limited by your mental health struggles? So that's a tricky question for me to answer because in many ways, I think it's fair to say I've not been limited in the sense that I'm, if I, if I can say so, like I'm very successful, like professionally, creatively, like I have a lot of dreams for my life when I was a kid and in many ways I've achieved those and more. And, uh, and then I've also gotten married and I've had a kid. I always wanted to have a family and I, I have all that. Um, so on paper, I think it'd be hard to say that I've been limited, but in reality, I've been greatly limited by it. Um, I mean, I had crippling migraines, which I think was my version of a panic attack for five years without understanding why I wouldn't be able to do too much that was out of my comfort zone, you know, without uh, getting the migraines. Um, I struggled a lot communicating with my wife and we had a lot of marital problems uh, as I tried to understand myself in addition to like understanding another person. I think I've just gone through a lot of pain and a lack of happiness when everything indicated that I should be happy. So in many ways, I've, I've achieved a lot and lived a wonderful life. And in a lot of ways, I've not enjoyed my life nearly as much as I should have. Right. Yeah, I, I think I've struggled with the same things, sometimes falling into a guilt trap thinking, why on earth am I feeling this way? Why am I feeling like I should be doing more or should be achieving more when I have all the things that somebody from the outside looking in would say, you have all the things you want. You know, you have the things you've dreamed of. You have your dream job. You know, when I was teaching choir, you have your health, you have a wonderfully supportive family, but I would still feel that way. And then I would fall into this guilt trap wondering why the heck can't you be happy and satisfied with yourself? And why can't you love yourself the way everyone, especially in the media talks about, even though you have all those things that felt like a really bad defect on my part. Yeah, I have an anecdote there when my daughter was in the NICU. She was born at 28 weeks, so she was three months premature. She ended up having like a prolonged stay because she had complications in the NICU. But at one point, she was doing well. There are all these little milestones in the NICU where you move from like a room to room. And like each room is like one step closer to bringing your baby home. And if you move back to the old room, you know what that means. Like you went back the other way. So you're always watching for signs that 
you're going the right path. My wife spent most of every day at the NICU that whole three months. And I was there every moment I wasn't at work. But we came in to see our daughter and the nurse, I think it was a nurse practitioner or a, I forget which, it wasn't a full doctor, but it was like an acting doctor. It was like, okay, hang on. We just need to intubate your baby really quick. And, uh, and then we can talk. And we were like, what? We didn't know that she was going to be intubated. And he was like really cavalier about it. And we were uh, devastated. And so we go out in the hall, like where you asked us to go. And we're just kind of holding on to each other. Just like, we don't know what's happening. We're so upset. And the NICU is a place where like all around you were all these babies with horrible stories. And there was a baby in our NICU who had been in the NICU for two years, ever since he was born. He had like a, a feeding tube, a permanent feeding tube. And he was about to be released into a group home, a group foster home. We had no parents who could take take care of him. And it was just the, the saddest story in the world. And there were tons of those. So we're, we're there, we're holding each other. And I just realized in that moment that like, you have to feel your feelings. Your problems are your problems. Perspective can't fix what hurts you. It's not that having perspective isn't a good thing, but like you, you have to face your problems because they're yours. They belong to you, whether you feel that you deserve them or not. The end of that story is that the, uh, the nurse, nurse practitioner called us back in and said he'd been reading the wrong chart and uh, my wife was going to kill him. But it at least created an epiphany for me that I, I think of a lot. Yeah, I remember you talking to me about that and that made a big impression on me as well. And I have thought about that a lot in the time since you shared that. So even though your anxiety has has limited you in, in many ways, like you said, you have continued forward doing the things that you want. Do you feel like that there's any ways that your mental health challenges have actually been beneficial in your life or you've taken them and made them into something that is beneficial? I think that my challenges are inextricable from who I am. Like they are who I am. And so when I say I've been successful, like the, the parts of me that make it hard to order a Taco Bell are also the parts that have worked on video games for 17 years in one of the most competitive industries stay relevant in. I'm an obsessive perfectionist and... Uh, a constant voracious learner and I self-evaluate constantly which means that I learn and grow constantly and I always try to be a better person and I try to be a better worker and it's a it's a balance you know too like trying to pursue more stability and in, in my life and also not feeling like it's going to lose the parts of me that I don't want to lose I think the truth is that because it is who you are, therapy can't erase you. I think that's something that people get afraid of. It's like, oh, if I fix these things about me, suddenly I won't make good art anymore. I, I was scared of taking medication for that reason, because I was afraid that the medication was going to 
alter me. Cause you know, I dealt with scrupulosity. So I, I had a lot of um, obsessions over morality and I was afraid I was going to turn into some amoral, like even <laughs> if I took medication, I really did worry about that. That'd be something. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine it? What would that look like? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it didn't happen that way. What it did was it just alleviated some of the, the constant worry and the constant over-evaluating. It just slowed, slowed down the parts of my brain that were moving way too fast. And it was liberating to realize that I could choose who I wanted to be instead of being a slave to who I was because mm -hmm. my anxieties and OCD were kind of forcing me to behave in a way I, it, it felt like it was forcing my hand. And when I took the medication and had some therapy, I felt like I was making my own choices at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's well said. So as a father and a husband, how have you navigated through, you mentioned that you've had a lot of challenges uh, in your family life because of your mental health struggles. How have you navigated through those and what has helped you the most to stay grounded and to have a peaceful and happy life? I, I've gone to a lot of therapy, um, different therapists. So I'll, I'll, I've done a stint of therapy and then I'll try some other stuff and then back in therapy. And so those things have actually helped me a lot. Really the unifying element through it all is that my wife and I both just want we want to be better and we want to be together i really crystallized for me when i had some career struggles because i was doing a uh, independent project and right around the time that my daughter came out of the nicu came home i go into this independent project it was very stressful and health insurance was extremely expensive, but we've got this kind of special needs kid. And then around this time, my wife starts having panic attacks and we start to realize a lot of the PTSD and like struggles that had been accumulating because of our daughter's traumatic birth. And uh, I ended up shelving that project basically because my wife asked me to, she said, I can't handle this anymore. I can't, I can't handle life like this. And in the moment I made the right choice. I just said, I choose my family. But then I dealing with that choice was hard for me later. I was just like, I've like, what happened in my dreams? You know, like I felt like I was so close and now what am I doing? And uh, I remember my big epiphany there was like, well, I've always had two dreams. I had these career dreams, but then they had this other dream, which was to have a family. And that was my dream too. And I'm fighting for that dream just as hard as I would any other dream. So maybe I'm deferring one versus the other, but like there's nothing noble about, you know, going for, going for fame or going for your creative vision over your family. Not for me, because my family is my dream. And uh, that's what's really held me through the whole thing, which is like, I, I have a dream of being a good dad and being a good husband. You know, just like all the others, I'm going to work for it.
Yeah. That's so beautifully stated. And yeah, you and Shauna are, have really taught me a lot about commitment and standing by each other through the good times and the bad times and also supporting each other's dreams. And Mm -hmm. that, which is really, really cool. What are some things that you have done to help support your child, knowing that she has a lot of the similar thought patterns as you did as a child? What are some, some tips and things that you've told her to help her through some of her own difficulties? I think mostly my role has been normalizing her feelings for her, like telling her, you know, it's okay to feel like this. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be angry sometimes and then wonder and then be upset at what you said before. I kind of intercept and be like, hold on a sec. Like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, I know how that feels and it's okay. But what's not okay is yelling at right. mom every single day at the, you know, <laughs> in many ways, she's a lot like me and in other ways, super different. Like I just held it all in. Whereas is kind of incapable of holding it all in. She was exploding <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and so like trying to help her navigate, um, you know, between like, it's okay that she is the person she is, but also like you then need to work to like fit in this family and this world. You know, that's, that's like the harder part. And that's where we've leaned a lot, most recently, especially on help from counselors and, and a little bit of medication, which is something we didn't do for many years for her or for me. Now we're both on medication. Do you feel like that's been helpful? For me personally, I went on medication and my migraines went away and I just felt like a little bit better, like a little more stable. And then I immediately started talking to my therapist at the time then and said, okay, so what do I need to do to get off this medication? You know, and she said, you should expect to be on the medicine for at least two years before you even think about getting off it. And I don't know what the typical response is to that, but I felt an immediate wave of relief when she said that. Because like, I'm just always working. I'm like, always like, okay, what do I do next? How can I be a better person? How can I help uh, the people who I love? And and I just felt like what I need to do is not be on medication. And when she's like, no, get used to it. You need to be on this medicine and like, just be stable. And then we can start talking about it. For me, it was a huge weight was lifted. I was just like, it's okay just to be helped. I occasionally have nightmares that I lose all my pills. I I think the medicine's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had that same conversation with the, when I had my um, evaluation to go to the OCD treatment center, I basically said, so is it possible for me to get off my medication? Like, will this treatment center, make it so that I don't have to have medication anymore. That was basically what I was asking. And the, the therapist said, you know, that's not the goal of our clinic. The goal of our clinic is to find the best possible combination of therapy and medication that's going to help you have the best quality of life. And for a lot of people, me included, it, that means being on medication, most likely for the rest of my life. And I came to peace with it at that point and realized that it's, it is, yeah, like you said, it's it's a relief to realize that 
you can, you don't have to go back to the intense heightened anxiety. Yeah. And just having to work that much harder to be functioning at the level that a lot of people just do. Right, right. Exactly. It kind of puts you on an even playing field, sort of, so to speak. Right. right. So what advice would you give to others who struggle with similar challenges like generalized anxiety disorder or PTSD? Get help. Uh, <laughs> be open to the idea that, that, you can, that you can have help. I was always a shoulder at all kind of person, white knuckle through everything and a very capable person. And so, you know, hyper achiever. And, uh, and that there's a difference though, between being competent and being somebody worth admiring or, or whatever your goal is. And like not killing yourself. And I mean that literally, like your mind can kill you, right? Like your mind can can tear your body apart. To pretend like it can't um, is, well, you're only hurting yourself, really. Right. My, I remember my therapist at the center said, we are aiming for mediocre. That's, that's our <laughs> goal here. Our goal is to, to be happy with mediocre, to be satisfied with just regular normal and i would probably amend that and say uh, imperfection right because because i think you can be extraordinary and uh and still be happy i i get to like i think he was exposing you to that idea you know of mediocrity i think i'm even having a reaction to that because just like <laughs> there's no way i'm doing anything mediocre but you know i know i should be like, because because yeah. I'm, I'm mediocre in a lot of things, like, you know, maintaining, like listening to my wife 100% of the time, as she's telling me today, I'm mediocre. <laughs> well, it's funny, because like, I, I had goals that I would set to like, set a timer and say my prayers for one minute, because I always was felt like, oh, in my prayers, if I don't pray for every single person in my family, and I don't do it like in the right order. And if I forget about mm -hmm. like, you know, every other person I know who's suffering, then I'm a horrible person or something bad's going to happen to them. So my prayers would be sort of like these miserable experiences. And so it was like, okay, your goal this week is to set a one minute timer and you're only allowed to pray for one minute <laughs> mm -hmm. and then you have to be done. So it's like taking it down a notch and just being okay with something that's like half baked. And yeah, it, like you said, though, even just hearing that word, like, be mediocre, it's just, it's like anxiety inducing. <laughs> it's so funny, just the genetic component of this and like being able to to see certain similarities in, in our thought patterns. And um, I don't, it's kind of comforting, really, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of nice. It's really nice. <laughs> it's, all, it's always nice not to be uh, alone. The goal of Mental Illness in Me is to normalize the mental health conversation and help those who suffer feel less alone. Your support is critical to raise awareness and help as many people as possible. If this podcast resonates with you, please follow our Instagram account, Mental Illness in Me KT, 
our Facebook page, Mental Illness and Me, or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you are interested in sharing your story, please email mentalillnessandmekt at gmail.com.